Hey everyone, I'm Jacob Cohen Donnelly and this is a Media Operator. This show is a discussion about building media companies for current and prospective media operators. We discuss business models, products, audience development, subscriptions, advertising, commerce, everything to help you with your media business. To learn more and to become a premium member of the newsletter, visit amediaoperator.com slash amopodcast to receive 10% off a yearly subscription. My guest this week is Ben Clymer, founder and CEO of Hodinkee, a media and commerce company focused on luxury watches. During our 40-minute conversation, we discussed the early days of the company, why he wanted the company to have a print magazine, how they've made millions in sales in minutes, and where the publication is headed from here. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Can you talk about where the idea for Hodinkee came from, the genesis of that name, and how you got started? Sure. So the the genesis of of Hodinkee is is really completely organic. You know, there there was no idea for it. You know, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my with my life. To be totally frank, you know, it's one of those things where I grew up in upstate New York. I went to school for for business and and uh, information studies, and you know, I knew that I wanted to be in in business of some kind. I didn't think media was the answer. To be totally honest with you. So I started my career after undergrad in New York in uh, in consulting, like management consulting, and then finance at working at UBS. And that was, you know, kind of during the the first financial crisis of of my lifetime in two thousand eight. Uh, and I saw the way that that not only myself, but you know, kind of similar folks and even those senior to me were treated during that you know really strenuous time on the financial industry. And it just it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And at the time, I I, I had a small blog going about watches called Hodinkee. Um, that was inspired by a watch that my my grandfather had given me. My my maternal grandfather was an entrepreneur, not in the media world, um, and he gave me his Omega, and that kind of inspired me to to start writing about it. I really wanted to learn about it, and it was my little creative outlet. And so I started writing more and more, uh, and then more people started coming to it. And when you know when you know, kind of layoffs hit at UBS, I was perfectly happy to to take a severance package and say, you know what, I want to go do something completely differently. Uh, and uh, I then started writing for a few other publications and ended up going back to, to journalism school. Um, so it, it was, again, no business plan then, you know, much to the chagrin of many of my investors, still no business plan now, I'm, I'm kind of proud to say. Um, but, you know, it was one of those things where this was purely born out of passion. And, you know, we're, we're an e-commerce player as well as media for sure. Um, and, you know, that just that just came to us because we felt that our, our advertisers weren't you know, rightfully respecting or dutifully respecting the power that we had with our audience. Uh, and, and in terms of where the name Hodinkee came from, so Hodinkee, um, with, a, with a Y on the end, H-O-D-I-N-K-Y, actually means wristwatch in Czech, uh, of all things. And it, it sounds kind of silly to say now, but in 2008, 2009, it was actually really common for people starting websites to add a double vowel to any any kind of name that they were that they were creating for a website. So Google would be the big one, of course. But I mean, look at what Gwyneth Paltrow did. Goop, you know, the double O in the middle. So Hodinkee was kind of a, a spin off of Google and Goop, I guess, back in the day. Uh, and it just worked. And, you know, it was one of those things where we don't take ourselves too seriously. And I think that's that's why Hodinkee works. Uh, you know, we're talking about very expensive, often, you know, perceived to be pretentious things. But with a name like that, you know, we, we people know that we don't take ourselves all that seriously. And originally, Hodinkee was just your blog for you to talk about watches. At what point did it make that pivot from 
Ben is writing about watches to yep. Podinky is a watch publication for people. Yeah, it was probably, you know, when, when I got into graduate school for journalism, I realized, you know, I, I used Hodinkee as, as basically the foundation of my application to journalism school, somehow got got into a good one uh, and realized then that like, hey, maybe there is something to it. And around the same time, larger watch companies, you know, very large for me, said, hey, you know, hey, Ben, you know, we love what you're doing. Would it be possible to advertise alongside your content? And I said, sure. I mean, it, it's completely passive income. Why not? Uh, and that happened probably around 2009, 2010. Uh, and then when I graduated from journalism school in 2012, uh, you know, I hired my first uh, one or two employees and kind of really went off to the races. But it was still an advertising-based business. Uh, and that that started the change around late 2012. So I want to talk a little bit more about those early days. It's interesting. A lot of the people I've talked to sort of started the project out on their own and then just sort of fell into this opportunity and then started hiring people. So thinking about those first two hires, you know, what was the composition of the team when it was just you and the two other people? Yep, sure. So, you know, the, the first two people I, I hired, I'm, I'm extremely proud to say, are still with Todinki and still, you know, I'm actually now in, in very senior roles in the company. The first uh, was named Stephen Pulverant. We hired him effectively right out of grad school. Uh, you know, a young guy that was doing some freelance work uh, for a few kind of like luxury publications as well as Business Week. And he was he was a mini me. You know, I mean, he was an editor, uh, a photographer, you know, kind of a one man show that could do just about anything. He could host events, still can, um, you know, eventually get into to video work uh, not on the production side, but on the talent side. Um, and, you know, he was tasked with with basically everything that I was tasked with, which at the time was was literally everything. Uh, and then Will, uh, I had met at, at journalism school. And, you know, I remember I, I had this idea of doing video and I had done quite a bit of video before I met Will, um, you know, on my own. And I would shoot it myself and I would cut it in iMovie uh, or, you know, some such program. And then I met him at, at journalism school and he was in one of my digital media classes. And I was like, wow, this guy is just way better at, at, at video production than I am. Uh, certainly would give it more time than I would. And so I actually asked him to edit something that I had shot for the site. You know, I, I think I paid him a hundred bucks or something like that, and he did an amazing job. And I said, "Hey, like, let, let's let's take this a little bit more, you know, more seriously." Uh, and so my second hire ever was a full time videographer uh, and photographer, of course. But I mean, I would say video was kind of his 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 specialty, and certainly what allowed us to kind of, you know, kind of jumpstart into the mainstream is was with our video work. Um, so it was myself who was a photographer, writer, uh, editor, etc., uh, and then Stephen, who was effectively the same thing. And then Will, who was uh, really purely a videographer and, and photographer. So I want to pivot and talk a little bit about the business because there are quite a few lines of business. And we'll talk about e-commerce in a second, but I want to start with a simpler one, which is the media business. You said that early on, advertisers started coming to you asking to advertise around the content, which you know makes perfect sense. It's a contextual ad play. Today, what are the products that you offer to advertisers and what is the audience story that you sell them on? Sure. I mean, so the, the, the audience is, is the thing that I'm the most proud of. I mean, our, our audience is, is, is me, is you, is somebody that is educated, uh, that is thoughtful about their, their purchases, that in many cases actually want to pay more for something with a great story. You know, they care about the craft, not the cost, uh, but they are capable of, of paying the price when, when, when they want to. Uh, and so our, our demographic and psychographic are, are really, you know, very, very important to kind of our brand. And that is a young, intelligent, affluent, thoughtful person uh, that, again, is is interested in in things. 
Um, and I think, you know, we've been able to validate that many times over, which is why we actually launched e-commerce. But, you know, our products right now range from everything from basic display ads on, on the site and app and et cetera, uh, to print publication. You know, we still get an amazing, uh, amazing value um, for our print advertisers, you know, you know, relative to what else is out there. Uh, we have podcasts, two podcasts that we sell ads against. Uh, and we do a significant uh, portion of our business now in native advertising, which is, you know, brand X says, hey, this is what we want to promote. How would you tell that story? And so, you know, effectively what we're doing is taking a story that we would love to produce and giving it the time, money, resources that we simply just don't have. You know, we couldn't afford to give everybody the time of day that we do with the sponsored packages or the native packages simply out of a resource drain concern, you know? Uh, and so brand X says, hey, we want to do something awesome with this watch, you know, up in the, the mountains of, of uh, Montreal or something like that, you know, let's do it. Uh, and then they basically allow us to, to kind of style it and, and craft it and then also develop kind of special landing pages for things. Uh, so native native advertising is definitely a, a bigger thing uh, for, for us over the past few years. Why did you decide to launch a print publication? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I mean, I think so. I mean, here's the thing. Like, I, I'm slightly older than than maybe some of your listeners uh and certainly some of my my, my listeners and readers you know in that i i really love and and hold in high regard traditional media and print media uh you know the gqs the vogues the esquires were, were kind of these stalwarts and still are the the stalwarts of of you know traditional you know kind of like opulent media um and so we always wanted to do it Stephen and i from the earliest conversations this first day i bet we probably talked about it but we wanted to do it the hodinky way which is you know finding a wonderful printer in Canada that, that's carbon neutral and also, you know, has the best stock of paper you could possibly imagine. Uh, and then we also wanted to give it, you know, the, the right creative services, et cetera. And so it just took us a long time to get to a point where we thought we had the bandwidth to do it. But more than that, we wanted to do something that would act as a prestige funnel into our world that would get people that was slightly different than who would come to our site on the internet. So Hodinkee Online is, is watches. It is pure watches all day, every day. And that's great. And the, the, the majority of our audience loves that. But we also have the interest and ability to tell stories about watches, about art, architecture, design, style, fashion, you name it. Uh, so the magazine is actually far more kind of wide in what we cover. And with that, we've been able to get distribution through American Express Centurion lounges in all their lounges around the world back when people used airplanes. Uh, you know, it's in Soho House. It's in several hotels, you know, very high-end hotels around the world. It's in FBOs, which are private jet terminals. You know, it has really become an interesting way to get people into our brand in a very organic way. They'll pick up the magazine at a private jet terminal or wherever and say, oh, what is this thing? It's beautiful. And then they kind of discover that there's this whole other world that lives online from there. The other thing I'll say is we've been able to crack advertisers in print that we were not able to crack online. And, you know, we're, we're dealing with a hyper-conservative, in many cases, you know, really kind of backwards thinking industry. And we said, hey, look, if they don't believe in the Internet, that's fine. We'll give them a uh, we'll give them a program. We'll give them a package that they do believe in. And crazily enough, they actually still believe in print, uh, especially print that is beautiful and print that that speaks to exactly their audience. Uh, and I think beyond that, it's just like, you know, we often do things that, you know, reward us in certain ways. And Hodinkee, as I said, was really an outlet for me. The idea was never really to serve a community in the beginning. It was to give me the opportunity to, to be creative and, and produce something. And I think the magazine is, is just as just another example of that, where we want to, we wanted to flex a certain muscle that we don't get to use all that often um, in the online world. And it's, it's been a lot of fun to produce for sure. Now the major part of the business is uh, the e-commerce business. 
Uh, and you are one of the few online entities that has direct relationships with some of these luxury watch brands. How did that happen? Because, you know, from my understanding of the watch world, and you kind of alluded to it, they are very resistant to the uh, to selling watches online. But you figured out how to convince them to do that. How did you do that? Well, I'll start from the beginning. And the, the, the first thing I'll say is one of the very first conversations I had with a very, very senior, uh, he was French, uh, luxury executive. Uh, you know, and somebody said, this is when I was in journalism school, a publicist said, Hey, so-and-so you should meet this guy. He's online. He's, he's a blogger, quote unquote. And, uh, you know, his response was, Oh, very nice to meet you. I think the internet is for poor people. Uh, and that was said to my face, you know, and this was, this was no more than say 11 years ago. So probably 2009 or so. So that's the, the foundation with which we're working. We're working with a foundation that is just so ridiculously, really prejudiced against online and against digital. And it's always been that way. And things have been getting better since, of course. But basically how we convinced these folks to go online was by playing the straight and narrow, by saying, hey, we are going to do things at the highest quality. Yes, we happen to be online, but our content, our video, our photography, our everything is going to be so much better than anything else you see, print or digital, around the globe that you, are, you will be forced to hold us in high regard. And then that led... Uh, us to, you know, working with, uh, you know, well-known people like like Jay-Z and like John Mayer and kind of, you know, well-known folks in the watch world, that certainly helped. Uh, it allowed us to grab the attention of the GQs and Esquires and Vogue's and Vanity Fairs of the world. You know, those guys were, were nice about covering us. New York Times wrote about us significantly uh, in the early days. Uh, and then, you know, look, we, we were on the jury of the Grand Prix of watchmaking, which is like the Oscars watchmaking. All these barriers that existed to to not only Americans, but also digital players were broken by us first, uh, in most cases. Uh, and so, you know, that allowed us to say, like, look, we're going to do this, but we're going to do it the right way. And I think that is what the Swiss and, and, and European luxury, you know, kind of really cares about most. Uh, and so, you know, it took it took a long time. But, you know, going back to this idea that, like, we had this incredible audience, this wild, like, shockingly engaged audience, you know, I would get um, emails from people saying, hey, you know, this article that you wrote about this Patek Philippe, which is like a very expensive watch, uh, you know, caused me to spend $200,000 on this thing. And I said, wow, that's amazing. And I would show these marketing folks at the brand said, hey, this guy spent 200 grand because of our story. And instead of saying, hey, here's $100,000 in advertising dollars, they would either say, thank you very much, or that's great. Here's five grand or something like that for the next year in advertising, you know, just to, as a way to placate us. And I was like, that just doesn't that just doesn't seem right. Like, you know, we are truly turning people onto their products at scale. You know, by this point, it was at scale. You know, we'll see a million people a month or something. Um, and uh, and it just it felt unfair to me. And I said, look, like if if you don't think our audience is transactional, like let us put our money where our mouth is. We will buy some product from you. We will design a product and we will sell it only online, which is you know a, 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 like kind of shocking to people back then. And so we did that, and we did limited edition watches for the first few years. You know, they would sell out often within minutes, sometimes, you know, maybe an hour or two. We've made a few million dollars within 20 minutes uh, with, with certain products. Uh, and people were just forced to take notice and said, wait a minute, like these guys are really doing things a different way. They're doing it online. And, uh, you know, with that came some you know prominent investors in 2015, uh, then some prominent employees a little bit later. And then we kind of went off to the races. And so I guess a few follow up questions on that. The first is when you started originally you did not intend for this to be an e-commerce play. <laughs> Correct. You know, and, and it's so funny. There's actually, there's a story 
uh, or an interview with me rather from Reuters in probably 2015. And I say verbatim, we will never sell watches online. I said that ex expressly. And it may, be, may, it may have been actually much earlier than 2015, maybe 12 or 13, probably when I was in journalism school. That sounds like something I would say when I was in journalism school. Uh, and what's funny is that that's obviously no longer the case. We've, in fact, you know, reversed that completely. But the gentleman who actually wrote that story for Reuters now works for us. Uh, and so again, kind of coming full circle, like it's one of those things where like you have to be adaptive. You have to be willing to change your opinion based on new inputs. You know, in 2012, 2013, there was this idea that media was going to come back. It was just going to be online, you know, and then as time went on, it just said, wait a minute, like even online media like might become a race to the bottom. And like, who wants to pay for banner ads anymore? And, you know, it's just one of those things where like it's so difficult to be held accountable for these statements you make. In situ, they make a lot of sense, you know, but had I known what was going to happen to the world, the media world, the digital world, the e-com world in the years to come, I never would have said that for sure. Um, so, yeah, but there, there was no intent uh, at all to be an e-commerce player in the early days. We did start selling straps like leather goods and, and small accessories in 2012. And that really validated this idea that that our audience was was more than than kind of engaged. They were transactional. They really wanted to spend with us. Going from being just a media company to now being an e-commerce company, what had to change about the structure of the business, both from a technical perspective, but as well as a staffing perspective? Yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're still going through those changes right now. And I think we will be for some time. Like we are, from a legacy perspective, we are a media company. Such a good chunk of our of our uh, team is based on the media side, ad sales side, video side, et cetera. But as you've alluded, like a good, good chunk, I mean, more than half of the revenue, far more than half of the revenue comes from the commerce side. So what we've had to do is kind of rethink the way that we hire, rethink the way we prioritize things. We were able to bring over a man that that I've you know truly admired for, for the longest time. His name is Russell Kelly. Uh, he was actually the president of a watch brand in, that we work with very closely here in the United States. Uh, worked for Rolex, you know, really kind of a just a star all around. And we brought him in as our chief commercial officer. And and he this is what he does. He knows how to sell watches. He knows how the industry works, frankly, in a way that I don't. Um, and, you know, we gave him the authority to really build out his team in a meaningful way. And that will only expand with time. Um, and, you know, bringing in somebody that has experience in that space was, was a game changer for us. No question about it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you also create unique co-branded watches. How does that work? Sure. So that was actually how we first got our start because we didn't like we wanted to say, hey, our audience is different than everybody else's. Our, our products that we want for our audience are also different than everything else. So we go out and we take the DNA or the heritage that already exists within any great brand, take Omega, for example, or Vacheron, you know, these high end watch brands. And we put our own little twist on it and we say, hey, let's call this a Hodinkee limited edition. Let's make 500 of them. We'll take 300. You take 200. We'll sell them online. And then we, we do it. Um, and so we, we, we've done this very successfully um, for a long time. It's a little bit like if, if you're familiar with Supreme, the streetwear company, or Kith, which is kind of another streetwear company, they'll do, you know, Supreme X Louis Vuitton or whoever. And it's, it's the idea that there's this like special, you know, special joining, conjoining of two distinct brands, and they put their own spin on these like kind of legacy products. Uh, and those have been wonderful brand building moments. We've worked with everyone from Hermes. You know, the, arguably the, the most prestigious luxury house in the world with Leica cameras, uh, you know, again, a very, very high end, you know, German made handmade camera uh, to Omega, the watch company. Um, and so we, we do this and it's a wonderful way to extend our brand, get new people, get people talking about what we're doing and also show 
just how meaningful Hodinkee has become to this space. You know, I really think that, and this is not just me saying this, somebody has said this about us. You know, I really think that in many ways, we kind of represent the future of what a, a brand could be and what a media property could be in that we're much more than just like journalists. We have journalists, I think the best in the world in our space. Uh, but I think beyond that, like we are our own brand. We are creating something that is is much more than just commentary on product. We are actually shaping product. And are the economics better on these co-branded watches versus just like selling an Omega or a Breitling? The economics are not better, to be totally honest with you. I, I you know, the the economics are are sometimes even worse uh, because you know the, there's certain things that look, we we get involved with these products as much as possible, and in many cases we say, hey, we want this to feel great for our audience. So if if the brand wants the price to be X, we want it to be X minus twenty percent, and we really push to get these these numbers down. In many cases, the brand says, hey. If you want to sell it for X minus 20%, that 20% is coming from your side, not ours, you know? Uh, and in many cases, we'll say, okay, fine. We, we, we'd rather do something that is meaningful and great than, you know, slightly overpriced. Um, so the economics are not better, but they are they are uh, quicker. I can tell you that. You know, the, these limited editions sell out. In, I think the longest one is ever taken, which was a very, very high-end uh, chronograph. I think it took four or five days, something like that. But the majority of them go within, you know, I'd say three hours, four hours at most. Um, so, you know, these are just amazing little revenue bursts uh, every time we do them. That's, uh, that's remarkable. Um, I've done, so I've not done commerce, but I've done events. And when uh, the day a ticket price is supposed to increase, suddenly you see a burst in people buying tickets and it's, it is, it's a, it's a dopamine hit. I will, uh, I'll be honest. Yeah, I mean, I you know, off off the record or not, you know, we we sold uh, we sold five hundred omegas in nineteen minutes uh, for a three point four million dollars, and so we had like the the Shopify screen up on our you know up on the TV in the office, and just to see it go from zero to three and a half million dollars in twenty minutes is just wild. You know, these things are flying all over the world. It, it was really a neat experience. Moving away from the e-commerce part, but still, you selling something. You've recently launched insurance as a product. What what made you move into this industry, and how does Hodinkee make money on this? Sure, yeah, that, that's so our insurance product is something I'm actually super proud of. It's something that I believed in for a long time. We actually worked on the product with with Chubb, who's you know kind of a world class insurer for many years. I mean, truly, like over two and a half years. So what what we do with Hodinkee is we try to solve problems that exist. And I'm a watch collector, which should not come as a surprise. And insuring your watches, no matter where you live, is a is a freaking pain in the ass, man. I mean, it really is annoying. You have to put it on a, a home insurer, you know, a homeowner's policy or a renter's insurance policy. You have to call the agent. It's really very convoluted and also just not not fun at all. And if you're really into watches, you're probably active. You know, you might take you're wearing one at a time. Um, there are some people that wear two, but that's another story. You're wearing one at a time, and so you don't need to be paying for insurance for things that are sitting in your safe or in the bank vault or whatever. So we wanted to create something that was incredibly user-friendly, that was dynamic so that you could change your policy, you know, from your iPhone. Uh, and we wanted to build something that was, that was really crafted for our audience, which is younger. So Chubb, as, as many of you may or may not know, is, is really a very premium service. You know, the, the average, I'm sorry, the starting point for a Chubb policy before Hodinkee for a wristwatch was $10,000. So not a premium of 10,000, but underwriting. Uh, and we said, hey, we want to get these guys into your service young. So we said, instead of a $10,000 minimum, let's do a $1,000 minimum, which means you're basically paying 50 bucks a year or less. 
On top of that, we want to integrate this completely with the Hodinkee app, which you know is, is fairly robust. And we also want to integrate it into something called the Hodinkee community, which is a digital platform that we built three years ago that allows people to, to comment and create, uh, you know, create uh, conversations and profiles and collections. So you can say, my name is Ben. He's got 10 watches. There's X, Y, and Z. From there, insurance is integrated perfectly. So you know, people have been able to store their watches for a little while, and now they can have them insured instantly. And on top of that, you can take a picture of your watch from your phone, insure it you know, in under 30 seconds. If you sell a watch to your friend, you can remove it from your policy instantly from your phone. It's super dynamic. Uh, it is uh, an amazing app, truly something I'm so proud of. Um, and with it, you know, we we are the we're we're more than an insurance broker. We created this policy with Chubb. Uh, it's something of a JV, and we go out and we said, hey, you know, we're gonna we're gonna basically be your sales agent and get people in our community in. And then Chubb takes over. You know, these are Chubb clients now uh, via us. And so basically, the, the there's a revenue split there. Uh, you know, Chubb, frankly, makes the majority of it, as they should. I mean, they're taking on all the risk. Um, and so it's it's a great kind of recurring revenue stream for us. And also, it solves a problem. And I think that's what I really feel Hodinkee is best at in, in this space. Like, we are not for everyone, for sure. But in the watch world, we think we can be for everyone there. And we can be a one-stop shop for new authorized watches on our shop side, vintage watches, accessories, and also demand creation on the media side, as well as insurance. Moving to your audience you know, as one of the premium communities dedicated to the watch market, how do you and the team think about audience development and introducing new people, either newbies or watch experts, to the Hodinkee ecosystem? Sure, I think that, that that's a great question. I mean, the way that we do it is we try we we don't try to suck people in. We try to to you know make them believe that they're coming there on their own, which they are. And I think you know we do these videos called Talking Watches, which is either myself or Stephen or one of our editors with, you know, a well-known person. It might be John Mayer, it might be Aziz Ansari or a professional athlete or whoever. And those videos we just put up on our site and we put up on YouTube. And most of them, you know, most of them do exceptionally well. I mean, you know, some of them are in the millions of, of views. And what it does is says, hey, you know, I'm a I'm a quiet guy from upstate New York. Like, you know, I love this stuff, but I don't really like, is, is it okay to be interested in these material things? You know, are, are people going to judge me for this? You know, that's kind of everyone's self-doubt about this. And then you see a video with somebody like a John Mayer, who's just like a cool guy that is hyper successful, that likes this stuff for the right reasons. And it kind of validates it. It says, hey, wait a minute, like it is okay to be into this stuff for the right reasons. And again, this is the the, the cost versus uh, craft kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, we, we create these videos. Nothing is sponsored. Nothing is paid for. We don't pay them. They don't pay us, you know, the, the, the talent. We just do these things with people that love watches. And that encourages a lot of young people to get into the space themselves. Uh, and then we know that they'll they'll begin to start reading Hodinkee after those videos and going on from there. And I, again, we often do, you know, those are the our best examples. But, you know, some of the, the more easy ones that we do are, you know, let's say, um, I don't know, Tiger Woods win the Masters or something like that. And so Tiger Woods is a paid Rolex ambassador. So he legally has to wear a Rolex when he wins a professional event. But nobody knows about that. And frankly, nobody cares. And so let's say Tiger Woods wins the Masters next month. If he wins, we're going to say watch spotting. Tiger Woods seen wearing, uh, you know, Rolex so and so at the Masters, and people will absolutely love it. And people will say, I guarantee you, they're going to see Tiger on TV, and they're going to Google exactly what uh, what watch he's wearing. And I think that is one of those things that that the the our core audience kind of kind of rolls their eyes at, but is an amazingly effective way to get people into uh, into our audience and into our brand. So I want to expand on the Hodinkee community and, 
you know, you made, you said you made that big investment a few years ago. Um, and you know, one of the, one of the products, like you said, was the collections feature where users keep track of all the watches that they own. How have these various community features helped you cement deeper relationships with the audience? And also how does it help inform either editorial or new product decisions? Yeah, look, I mean, I think any any relate like any real relationship, whether it's with a man, a woman, a friend, uh, an employer, an employee, like it, it's got to go both ways, you know. And I think one of those things where like we feel that look, they, they, we don't exist without our audience. They buy things from us. We sell ads against them, etc. We need to pay them back with something. And so what we do is we give them tools, we give them opportunities to purchase things that others don't have. We give them access to information others don't have. And the way that we view it is is that. You know, it's 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 a trade-off. We give them this, they give us that, and so the idea that people can track their their collections in on our platform, like that, that is a tool that people want. That's a tool that I would want if I were just a collector in the community. Uh, and I think you know, insurance is another example of that. Um, but we we really feel that that everything we do should should equally serve them as much as it serves us. And with everyone in media losing their minds over subscriptions. Is there a paid component to the community that you could see in the future? In the future, look, I mean, our, our magazine is, is subscription, obviously, but that that's a slightly different thing. That just covers the hard costs. You know, right right now, no. I think, I think you know, Hodinkee and watches in general are such a narrow, we're, like we're a subset of a subset of a subset. You know what I mean? And so I think trying to limit it even more would, would be detrimental, even though we have some very, very affluent, you know, kind of crazy affluent folks in our community you know, it just doesn't feel right. We want to keep this thing as, as open as, as possible. I think there's an opportunity to do hyper premium content. And what I mean by that is like for the person that's about to put half a million dollars into a watch at auction or pay for, you know, watch at auction, do they want special information about said object before they bid? That I could see us doing, but it wouldn't be a true subscription model. It would say, hey, it's like, a, it would be like a, a research uh, subscription as opposed to like, you know, a content subscription. Um, but in the in in the foreseeable future, I, I I don't see subscriptions as something that that I think makes a lot of sense for us. When when our goal is really to become a household name, we want to be synonymous with 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 watches. Uh, and so for now, I think we're going to head in in the direction that we're in. So media business, commerce business, magazine, you offer insurance through through a, through a joint venture, premium community. That's a lot to do when you started with three employees. <laughs> you're you're telling me, my friend. So, what does the team structure look like today? So, the so I'm I'm the the CEO, um, which may or may not make sense. We don't really know. Uh, that that was a joke, kind of. Um, but uh, you know, so I'm the CEO. We have a chief operating officer who kind of oversees everything that is not related to the shop. Uh, then we have Russell, who I mentioned, the chief commercial officer, who sees oversees everything on the shop. Uh, and then you know several VPs and 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 et cetera, kind of beneath those, those two. Um, you know we are still heavy on the edit side. We will not be letting anybody go. We'll simply be adding people that are slightly more in tune with commercial uh, objectives. Um, you know, so I think these people will be editors. They will be content creators. They might just understand that the future of this business as well is basically every other media business. You know, the Food Fifty Twos of the world, the meat eaters, things like that. Uh, or is is commerce. It just is. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, the structure, I don't think will change dramatically. I think it'll it'll kind of happen over time uh, where this will become more geared like a, a commercial play as opposed to an editorial. Let's build on that a little bit. You know, over the next few years, where do you see Hodinkee going? And to expand on that, 
Could you see the company expanding into new luxury markets, or are you just going to continue going deeper and deeper with watches? Yeah, I mean, we we've thought about that 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 last question ad nauseum. We you know we've been approached by you know the one of the biggest wine collectors in the world and one of the biggest car collectors in the world, and you know to to do the same thing for for those verticals. And look, we, we've given it thought. We we have this you know once once you succeed at one thing, it, you think it's very easy to do it again. I think I think we're we're smart in that we know that that's not necessarily the case. We also have a a, a wonderful stranglehold on on the watch world. You know, we we are the we are the the outlet for for watches right now, and this is a massive market. You know, a massive massive market. We're talking billion. You know, a, a, like you know, probably twenty billion dollars a year in watches go out the door, uh, if not more. And we're we're still a very small company, so I think there's a long way to go in a vertical where we have a massive amount of influence. So for the foreseeable future, I, I can say without a doubt we will stay to watch. That's not to say we wouldn't we won't cover other things. You know, we mo- we might expand upon you know the the base of what we're writing about even online. But what we sell and our our core business will remain watches for sure. I own a decent number of watches. I don't think anything that is uh, quite as luxurious as a an Omega or a Rolex. Uh, you're, but you're you're better off that way. Trust me. <laughs> but I uh, I never wear them because I mean a it's quarantine, but b they always get in the way when I'm typing and I type a lot. But you obviously love watches. What is your favorite watch and what's the story behind it? Yeah. So my, my favorite watch, as, as I mentioned really briefly in the beginning of this conversation, is the Omega that my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, gave me uh, when I was 16 years old. And like, you know, it's one of those things where you never really can understand how meaningful the slightest bit of kindness or, or gesture could be. My grandfather, when I was 16, who was my hero, he just took this watch off of his wrist. There was no circumstance or pomp around it. It, was, it wasn't like my birthday or Christmas or Hanukkah. He just said, here, I want you to have this and gave it to me. And I said, holy, you know, that, that's just unbelievable. Uh, and that watch is what I first started writing about on Hodinkee and first got me to understand why a mechanical watch could be so compelling to a young man or young woman. Um, and so that that watch, quite literally, that gift gave me the life that I have today, the one that which I'm, I'm very proud of, you know? Uh, so that is for sure my, my most valuable uh, watch from a sentimental point of view, for sure. So now it's, um, do the math, 12 years, I believe, since Hodinkee has, uh, has been in existence. That's a very long time to do a single to do a single thing. Yeah. I imagine you have made mistakes because oh, yeah. we all we all make mistakes. What is a mistake that you have made either individually or Hodinky overall uh that you wish you hadn't made and what did you learn about it? Yeah, I mean the the the, the number of mistakes are, you know, I mean they're they're countless as as any, you know, honest entrepreneur would tell you. I, I think I think I held on to power too long. And I don't mean like actual power. There was no power struggle or anything like that. But, you know, I was the sole proprietor of the business until 2015. Uh, You know, I was making most of the decisions kind of in a silo. Uh, It wasn't until 2015 that I brought in folks that had done something before. And what I mean by that is people that have run a business, at least witnessed somebody running a business, invested in businesses, et cetera. And I, I wish I had brought on investors earlier because that was a real turning point for me as a professional. For me as a person, uh, and then certainly for for Hodinkee as a business. So I, I would definitely have looked to bring in smarter people uh, or more small pe- uh, smart people earlier in the business for sure. How can somebody be aware that it's time to do that? Because obviously, when you first started, you were the solo guy writing about about watches, probably not ready to bring in a six figure COO. 
But at some point, like you had to recognize that. How do you, how would you advise other people to recognize they're at that inflection point where it makes sense to do that? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I think we were lucky enough in that we had people approaching us all along to invest. And I was like, ah, it doesn't make sense, blah, blah, blah. I'd rather just keep it small and have a nice life. Uh, but then, you know, in 2014, a, a very large media group, you know, one of the one of the big boys came around and said, we want to buy you. And they wanted to acquire the whole thing. It was a three person company. Uh, and they, it was basically an acquire. And I was like, wait a minute, like these top, top, top tier guys think enough of us to to, you know, to give us a little bit of money. It's probably time to to start thinking about the future of this business. Do I want to work with them? Do I want to raise our own money, et cetera? And I think, you know, not everybody's lucky enough to have people come knocking saying, hey, we want to buy you or hey, we want to invest. But I do think most people are lucky enough to have somebody might ha- might at least show a little bit of interest in investing. I mean, if you're on the if you're in the investment world at all, you know it's about supply, right? Like, I mean, it is actually competitive to find deals to invest in. You know, most people would say, Oh, I only want to work with X, Y, and Z. And so, you know, there are a lot of people out there that are constantly looking to give people money to invest, right? This is you know, no such thing as a free lunch. Like it's, it's a real investment. But I think that you, if you have something worthwhile, you will start to get those random cold emails from so-and-so in Boston or so-and-so in Philadelphia or New York or, or Greenwich or wherever saying that, hey, I'd, I'd love to take you to coffee and hear about your business, you know? And what that means is like they're kind of kicking the tires on, on if they want to invest or not. And I think once you start getting a steady stream of those, and it doesn't have to be a ton, but you know, a small handful, you might have something that is worthwhile because then all of a sudden, like you're you're approaching people's radars, you're on people's kind of you're in per, in people's purviews, uh, and then it, you, you you know that that is a good sign that you're headed in in the right direction. And then of course, I think like once you hit a certain number of of dollars per year, you know, and whether it's a million or a hundred thousand or five million, you know, that that's up for debate. Everyone's different, but you know, once you hit seven figures in revenue, like you just need people. You just need people around to support and make sure that, that things are running the, the right way. But I think for me, you know, I, I had always, I was always kind of anti-VC uh, in some ways because I, I just, you know, I didn't know why. I had no experience, but I just didn't like what kind of it represented. Now I've got some of my best friends are venture capitalists. Some of our greatest investors are for sure. And, you know, they've helped us change this business uh, for sure. And then, so my last question, you know, sort of builds on that last one. Um, you know, Hodinkee is clearly an example of a of, of what WebSmith from 2PM would call a linear commerce business, which is you build a great audience uh, through the media side and then you, you know, develop products and, and, and sell. For entrepreneurs or current media operators that are thinking about going down this path of building a, a media company that will also be a commerce company, what is some advice that you would give them? to try to streamline that that execution for them. Yeah, I, I think first and foremost, stay the hell away from watches, for sure. Uh, that, that's like kind of kidding, but like kind of not. Um, but no, I, I think the, the, the idea of hyper-specialization is, is everything. And I think like, you know, I'm, I'm a columnist for, for GQ. I just did a Facebook or an Instagram Live with them earlier today. Like I adore them. But I think like there's no more room for, for magazines like GQ. We have GQ, we have Esquire, we have Vanity Fair. We have enough kind of common interest, general interest publications on this planet. That is not the future of media. That is not the future of business. The future of business and media are, are hyper-specialized publications. And I use this example often, but like if you want to know about, uh, let's say, cars, right? You don't you don't read GQ, Vanity Fair, Esquire. You read a car blog or a car form. You know, and even from there, if you want to read about, you know, let's say, early air-cooled Porsches, there's a form, uh, an even more dedicated form for that. 
If you want to read about watches, you come to us. If you want to read about shoes, you go to the shoe blog. And I think, you know, picking something that is really hyper-specialized and already has a, a, a an unofficial community forming, you know, it could be in forums. I think that that's a really good way to figure out, you know, if you're going to do this from a strategic perspective, a really good way to figure out if there's a market is like, is there an organic, you know, kind of rinky-dink forum that has a huge user base, you know? And I think that was, that was interesting with watches. It's like there were two or three big, big forums back in the day, you know, in the watch world prior to Houdinki, but they were talking inward. They were talking, it was insular. They were talking to themselves, you know? And I think what we did is we took that mentality that you would see in these forums and started broadcasting it outward. And said, hey, everyone would love to know about the ins and outs of a Philippe Dufour simplicity and what it's like to get a handmade watch or, or whatever. And so, you know, my, my, my chief piece of advice for anybody looking to do this is hyper-specialization. Become an expert, you know, no matter what. I mean, look, it, it, it annoys me at this point 12 years in after we built this business into what it is to be, co- to be called a watch expert. But I am. You know what I mean? And many of the people that, that I respect the most and I think respect me the most in my life came to me first because they wanted my opinion on a watch. And you know what? That's okay. And I think, you know, again, it's I'm at that point where, like, I can get annoyed by that because we've, we've done so much more than that. But having a specialization and an understanding in something that is not very commonly held is, is, is really an amazing way to meet some very interesting people and potentially build a great business. If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe and give it a five-star rating with your thoughts. If you want even more, sign up for the newsletter at amediaoperator.com. Each Tuesday... I analyze the latest media news. And on Fridays, I do deep dives into specific strategic and tactical topics about building media businesses. Thanks for listening and see you next week.